I'm just going to make myself as strong and as healthy as I can at the weight that I can get to, which is again, in kind of the, the same mentality that I had to begin with, you know, you're kind of dealt what you're dealt with for a body with genetics and everything else. And you got to make yourself as healthy as you can be with what you're given. So that's what I'm working towards now. Uh, I may never be the world's strongest man. I was never going to be, but maybe I can be the world's strongest man without a stomach. Hey everybody, thanks for tuning in to Cubicle Athlete. On today's episode, we have a unique guest. His name is Colt Blunt, and he's very different from my previous guests as he's not involved in any sports. But I thought he encompassed exactly what I'm trying to do with this podcast. He went through hell, and he came out of it with a really positive outlook and had lots of wisdom to share. After being diagnosed with stomach cancer in his mid-30s and being told that he had a slim chance to survive, he went through several rounds of chemo, and he had his stomach surgically removed. We go into all that and a lot more. Uh, normally, I start these podcasts with a cup of coffee, but in this one, Colt and I were drinking some scotch, and it was an honor to sit down with him, have a couple of drinks, and hear his story. So without further ado, let's start the show. I haven't poured my glass yet. Pour yours? Neither have I. Let me at least uh, get the foil off of it. There you go. You got a brand new bottle, right? I did, yep. I went and picked one up uh, a couple nights ago. Maybe it was last night. Days run together during this pandemic stuff. Oh, it's crazy. So my wife got pregnant right at the beginning of the pandemic. And I now have a three-week-old, which explains why you see my bedroom behind me yep. and not my office. It used to be an office. <laughs> so yeah, it's been an interesting last three weeks or last nine months, I should say. Well, congratulations. Thanks, buddy. Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, it's been crazy. All right. I'm going to pour this log of woolen 12 here. Awesome. And I haven't had a drink in a while either, so this will be nice. Well, maybe we'll both be slurring a little bit by the end of this then, maybe. That'd, that'd be nice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I think it's been, it might have been a, it might be a couple months since I've had a glass. So it's, it's Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, cheers, man. I, uh, again, thank you so much for doing this. And oh, not a problem. Yeah, my we'll pleasure. See. Thank you. Cheers. Cheers. So, where where are you right now? You're in Minneapolis. Is that where I saw? Yeah, I'm in yeah. Uh, Twin Cities area. I'm in a, a southwest suburb of the Twin Cities. Got it. Okay, and you're a forensic psychologist. I am. Yep. Can you give me a little details on that? <laughs> so, I uh, I think most folks don't quite know what we do, and sometimes I don't either. Um, but uh, basically our job is we do a lot of court-ordered evaluations. So we're brought in when there are, when, when the legal system, especially the criminal legal system, needs a psychology expert to explain to the court what's going on with somebody. So we'll do competency to stand trial, uh, criminal responsibility, which is what uh, they now call the insanity defense. We do evaluations for civil commitment for people who are considered to be dangerous in the public. Uh, and we'll do evaluations for what we call risk assessment. So if somebody's in a secure facility and maybe a treatment program or the facility is looking at putting them in the community or seeing if they can have privileges, we'll come out and kind of do an evaluation with them and try to give them a, a set of recommendations and an overall appraisal of you know, whether somebody's too risky to be out in the public or too risky to move forward and hopefully give some recommendations for how they can control that risk. Got it. Okay. Yeah. Well, yeah, I, I wasn't too sure. I was one of those who didn't know what the hell you did, but that was a, no yeah, <laughs> that was a good breakdown. Um, 
Cool, man. So I, I want to get into the details of what you went through. I think it's pretty recent too, right? Like you're not that far out of it. it it's something that's pretty recent. And to give a little background to the listeners, I was scrolling through Reddit late night and uh, I saw an interesting post. I think it was a Momentum Mori. Is that what it is? Yeah, I think yeah. that was the post that, uh, uh, that brought us into contact. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So some, someone posted a picture of, uh, I guess it's, uh, we could call it a chart where he was just keeping track of every week of his life. It looked like he was, I don't know how old he was, if you remember, maybe late 20s or something like that. I think it was 20s, yep. Yeah, yeah. So it was just showing every week of his life from beginning to average lifespan in the the US, which is 80. Mm -hmm. Um, And you chimed in saying, hey, you know, this is great and all, but you probably shouldn't use this uh, with the thought in mind that you're going to make it to, to 80. Just every comment you had seemed to be for in my opinion was some pretty profound wisdom life advice and it was pretty apparent that it came from some heavy experience that as i was saying is pretty recent mm-hmm. you were diagnosed with cancer you no longer have a stomach that is the extent of what i know of what's going on with you so i'd love to get into the details uh, and we could start from the beginning, I guess, just r- before the diagnosis. What what was going on? What was life like? What was your mental state like? Uh, yeah. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, my life had been in a pretty interesting place uh, leading up to the diagnosis. Like, it, you kind of think about how many things can go wrong in somebody's life at once. And I kind of had, like, everything concentrated uh, within a, a couple of years. So, I had uh, one major medical diagnosis. So, in my mid-30s, I'm suddenly diagnosed out of nowhere with cystic fibrosis, which is unheard of for somebody my age. I have a very mild form. And, you know, you think like, okay, medically, at, in mid-30s, this has got to be the worst it's going to get. Um, I had uh, so, some major setbacks and some career goals. Uh, I went through a major breakup. Uh, I actually went through a divorce, kind of in the whole midst of all of this. And uh, just when you think that everything's kind of as bad as it's going to be, uh, it would have been in, let's see, it would have been actually a couple days before Easter of 2019, I start to get a little bit of heartburn. This is really and, recent. Yeah. Like, yeah, for most this people, is, like yeah. that's, that's not a big deal either. Like, you get heartburn. Um, right. But this happened all of a sudden, like I, I ate something and the joke that my father and I have is that I went to go and visit him. We were going to go out to dinner. He decided to eat without me because I was running a bit behind and he gives me this uh, spray cheese to eat. And it's something I wouldn't normally eat. I usually <laughs> try to eat pretty healthy and I eat this cheese and I'm like, oh, it tastes kind of off, but I'm hungry. And it was like my only meal of the day. And I get violently sick as a result of it. Wow. And I'm sick for a couple days. And I look at the cheese container the day after I start getting sick. And it's expired by like two years. So I'm like, oh, I've got food. That's <laughs> yeah. clearly what's going on with me. No big right. deal. But it doesn't go away. Uh, so I have this lingering heartburn, bloating, and kind of a pain right behind my breastbone. And at first, I'm like, well, you know, people get gastric reflux, people get a lot of different things, like I'm going to see what happens, but it didn't go away. Uh, And luckily for me, I had actually had a physical schedule in the meanwhile. So I'm like, you know, I'm usually a healthy guy, but this is a little bit different. I'm going to take notes about it. I'm going to tell my doctor about it. And so I go in a few weeks later, show my doctor my notes. And he says, you know, this is probably just GERD. You know, this is probably just something that happens. 
Uh, a lot of people get this as they get older, but you're not somebody who complains. So I'm going to take this seriously. I'm going to prescribe you a proton pump inhibitor. And that's kind of the, the normal treatment for somebody with acid reflux. But he tells me, if you're not back to normal in 10 days, and I'm going to call you and I'm going to make sure, but if you're not back to normal in 10 days, I'm going to request that you go in for an endoscopy. So actually get your stomach scoped, because at that point, I think you're probably experiencing a gastric ulcer, which would be, again, something that could be expected for somebody your age. At this point, are you, is the word cancer even in your mind? Are you thinking that it could be that? You know, unfortunately, that, that's always something that kind of pops up in my mind. I've got a family history of cancer. Uh, my mother died of cancer when I was 17. Uh, she actually had cancer for the first time when I was in the eighth grade. So she went through it twice. My grandfather on my mother's side died of cancer when he was 50. My grandmother died in her 70s of cancer. So I, I had a, a family history of it. I'm not a hypochondriac, though. I don't get that like irrational worry about it. But, you know, I think like, well, yeah, it could be cancer, certainly. Um, but I didn't think it was necessarily yeah. cancer. Gotcha. Um, See, because I, I am a hypochondriac. Like I, I sneeze and I'm like, okay, it's full-blown AIDS for sure. Uh, that's I wanted to see what your mental state was as this was going on. And I'll get into this probably later on, but the worst part about going through this is it reinforces every concern you have about your health. Sure. Because I was at least a little bit concerned. I said something and it ended up being the worst case scenario. Right. You know, anything that happens, you, you kind of have it in the back of your mind. Like, yeah, that's, that could be cancer again. That's probably cancer. Right. Uh, it's definitely not a healthy mentality, but it's, it's, how you survive this too. Well, it's got to be hard to escape that mentality because the worst case scenario already happened to you once. So it's, yeah, yeah, it's understandable. Yeah. It's almost adaptive at that point, which is unfortunate. Yeah. So I ended up uh, again, telling my doctor about it. He took it seriously and he calls me back up uh, about 10 days later. And he asked me, you know, Colt, do you feel back to normal? And I tell him, you know, it's, it's improved, but it's not a hundred percent. And he tells me that's not good enough. He wants me to go in for the endoscopy, and I have that a few days later. So I go in, they put a camera down my throat, they look around, and they find an ulcer. Uh, they pull the camera back out, and I ask the doctor point blank, what are the chances this is cancer? And he tells me one in a million. Oh, and I ask him, why do you say it's one in a million? And he said, because I just diagnosed somebody about your age with stomach cancer last week. And there's no way in hell I could come across another gastric cancer patient in their 30s that soon. How bad did you hate that response? Like, oh, it's such a, I, sh a shitty response. It's not a good response to begin <laughs> with. And then beyond that, that's the same doctor who called me the next morning and said, uh, and I'm going to try to get the quote right. Uh, I just got off the phone with the lab. They found a particularly nasty cancer growing in your stomach. Um, and of course, I've already looked up what gastric cancer is, you know, how dangerous it is, the likelihood of survival, all of these things. And I also know the course of treatment that I'm going, going to have to go through to survive this. So I know it's going to be chemotherapy, possibly radiation. And if I'm lucky, that's a weird thing to say when it comes to this. If I'm lucky, they get to take out my stomach and there's a chance for a cure. Right. Uh, so all of this is floating around in the back of my mind as the doctor's telling me this. And then he kind of tries to, uh, uh, I don't know, quiet my fears a little bit by saying like, hey, don't worry about it. Like it's, it's not, it, maybe it's not that serious. And I'm like, oh, I know the survival rates. I know it is serious. I know that I'm looking at like a 25% chance of survival if I'm lucky. 
Wow. Uh, depending upon the stage. And uh, he tells me, just have a nice day and then hangs up the phone. Yikes. Um, and that was, I think, a Friday morning. And that's what I woke up to that day uh, was that phone call. So I end up getting on the phone and trying to get in touch with my primary doc, the one who led to this diagnosis in the first place. Um, he's very proactive. He gets me in touch with his scheduler uh, and his assistant. And they're all on the horn right away, trying to get me in touch with an oncologist, trying to get me uh, scans to figure out if this thing is spread. Because all we know is that they had taken biopsies. The biopsies were positive for uh, adenocarcinoma, which is the most common type of gastric cancer. Um, they don't know how far it spread or if it spread or anything like that. So we know there's a lot of information that's needed. So I'm fortunate enough to have a scan a few days later. Uh, and I had a oncology appointment the day after that. So I go in for the scan and it's a really, really bizarre experience because you have to drink this awful tasting stuff and they shoot all this dye into your veins and then you have to sit there in the dark for an hour and you don't know what to expect. You don't know what to think, but when you're first diagnosed and you know nothing more, the last thing you want is to be alone with your thoughts. Sure. And that's what happens right before your scan. Like you sit there, you wait, you can't talk, you can't look at your phone, you can't do anything except sit there in the dark because they don't want your metabolism to do anything weird. Then you go sit in that tube. Uh, and when it's a, this was a PET and a CT scan. So very intensive scan. And I was in there for what felt like an hour, although I'm sure it was less than that. And of course they tell you, you're not gonna get your results right away. You know, your doctor has to look at it and you're probably not going to get it until the, the next appointment with your doctor. Almost like there's an intent to make this as awful as possible for you and make you <laughs> like almost, almost as if there's. Yeah. A, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And, it, you know, the medical system, I don't think does it intentionally. No, but of course they also not. don't have a lot of consideration for the psychological toll it takes on the patient. Um, I was very fortunate in this case that the nurse that works for my oncologist called me at the end of that day and said, you know, hey, I'm just calling to, to confirm the appointment for tomorrow. Uh, your oncologist is gonna be all ready for you. And also I'm not supposed to tell you, but the cancer hasn't spread. Wow. All in your stomach. And that's huge uh, yeah. because for stomach cancer, pretty much uh, you're looking at a stage four diagnosis most of the time if there are any symptoms. So unfortunately, the vast majority of people who are diagnosed with this type of cancer, it's too late for curative intent treatments by the time they're diagnosed. So most of the time what happens is the cancer actually spreads to other organs and those cause the symptoms that, that you notice. Got it. Um, it's not usually just in the, in the stomach. And the other big problem with stomach cancer is usually if somebody experiences something like I do, uh, so they get that heartburn. They go to the doctor. The doctor says, lose some weight, fatty. Here's some meds <laughs> for your acid reflux. Yeah. But if you lose weight, you'll be okay. And they take those meds. The symptoms get muted a bit, kind of like they did for me, but they don't necessarily go away. Uh, but the patient thinks, well, this is an improvement. I can live with this. And then they do start to lose weight. And they usually lose weight because that cancer is spread. And they go back into the doctor and the doctor says, good, you're losing weight. That's what I wanted you to do. And then they'll go away for a while longer. And then suddenly they're throwing up blood or they're, they've got blood in the toilet after they go to the bathroom. And it's too late at that point. Yeah. Not yeah. A lot you, they can do. 
No, and you're you're really not helping my hypochondria because because <laughs> well, here's the thing with me. You know, I'm I'm 34, and I've never had a serious diagnosis like you have, but I've definitely had my fair share of medical issues. And you know, every time I go into a, an appointment with a concern, they think it's oh, you're young, you're fit, and I I hate those yep. responses where it's like yeah, but these things still happen to people that are young and fit. They're just thinking it's statistically you're not likely to have this stuff. And it, it's just such an unfortunate mindset that I think a lot of doctors have. But yeah, I mean, look, in, in your case, obviously that was happening, but it still got caught in an early enough stage to where you, know, you were able to, to, to get out of it. But still, you were still facing that exact same issue that could have led you to, oh, it's too late now. Do you ever look back at decisions in your life and think like, what if I would have chosen a different option? How could things have turned out differently? I think that's perfectly natural. For sure. Um, in my case, I had had a string of doctors I did not like all the way throughout my adulthood. And I finally got a recommendation from a coworker of mine who said, go to this guy. He's fantastic. And I did. I changed my, I changed my primary to this guy. I changed systems. I think I even changed insurance uh, to be able to get into the system. And he was fantastic. I liked him from the moment I met him. And he ended up getting promoted in the system, in the medical system that he works for. And when I actually called to make that physical appointment, my yearly physical, they told me, hey, your doctor has been promoted. He's not taking as many clients at this point. Would you be willing to see somebody new? And I thought about it for a split second. And I said, no, I trust Dr. Robertson or Dr. Robinson. This is who I want to go to. Um, I don't want to try somebody new because he's always done right by me. He's always listened. And they said, well, okay, but it might be a couple months before we can get you in. And I'm thinking to myself, like, this is a routine physical at this point. That's fine. I can take a couple months. But if there's an earlier appointment that opens up, let me know. I'll come in at a moment's notice. Right. So I ended up getting a call back just a few hours later saying, hey, your doctor's got an opening. It just opened up. It's going to be in a few weeks which was fantastic. But I think back to myself, and if I would have said, go ahead, set me up with a different doctor, how could things have turned out differently for me? And that's my, my biggest thing right now, and that gets me very emotional at times, is I think back and I, I say to myself, this doctor literally saved my life because he listened and because he didn't just look at the statistics and say, he's young, he can't get sick. He listened to the, the symptoms and he decided to take me seriously. Yeah. And that's what every doctor should, should do. And it's what every patient should look for in a doctor. And the important thing there is you really stuck to your gut. And for lack of a better term, you were, you were stubborn in a way of like, no, like I, I'm sticking with this guy. I like this guy. And a lot of people, I'm fairly guilty of just kind of being a little laissez-faire sometimes of just, you know, yeah, whatever, like do what you got to do. Uh, he's moving on. It is what it is. Like I got to get a new doctor. But because you didn't do that, yeah, I mean, you, you could have had a very different outcome here. I mean, you might not be talking right now. Absolutely. And, I, you know, I, I truly think that I would either not be here or would be in a lot worse condition if I would have gone to another doctor. Yeah. And that's the other thing about being a cancer patient that, that really sucks is you deal with how the medical system is, is set up. And it moves at its own pace. And it's not fast enough for any patients when they're going through it. No. So as I'm going through all of these steps and trying to get appointments and, you know, trying to get second opinions, because there was bad news at one point that I'll get to in a second, 
you get this attitude that, hey, you don't, you don't get to ask for an earlier appointment. You don't get to think you're more important than anybody else. And you know, it's true. Nobody's really more important than anybody else when it comes to this thing. But you still, as a patient, have to advocate for yourself. Yeah. So initially, I'm told it's going to be like a month or so before I get my first appointment with an oncologist. That wasn't good enough for me. Uh, that's why I'm on the phone right away. I'm pushing for an appointment as early as possible. I finally get that less than a week later. And I want to make sure that that oncologist has a scan, like the scan results in hand so we know exactly where we're at. We can decide on a course of treatments. So for me, I went from diagnosis to having what we thought was a course of treatment within a week. Um, unfortunately, I get to that first appointment with the oncologist. He says everything looks great. I think that we're definitely looking at treating this to a cure. But what you have to do is you need to go in for one more endoscopy. And this time they're going to do ultrasound with it. And they're just going to make sure that it hasn't spread anywhere. So I go in there for that second endoscopy and I wake up at the end of it and they say, it's bigger than we thought. It's invaded a lot deeper than we thought. You're not looking at a stage one diagnosis. We're talking stage three. Sure. And that cancer is probably in your lymph nodes because we've got one that looks like it's inflamed, but it's on the other side of the tumor. And you literally can't get to it to biopsy it without putting a needle through the tumor. And if it's not cancerous already, it will be after that. Wow. So I wake up being told suddenly, you've gone from a pretty decent chance when it comes to gastric cancer to a pretty bad chance of survival. So right away, I'm on the phone trying to get a second opinion with the Mayo Clinic. Very fortunate to be able to do that just a few days later. And I go in there and I, I tell the, uh, the oncologist and I tell the surgeon that they set me up with, I don't care what the odds are. I don't want to hear them. I know that they're not good, but I'm young. I'm stubborn. I don't take no for an answer. I want you to throw the kitchen sink at me. And quite frankly, I would rather die from the treatment than die from the cancer. So if you literally treat me to death, I will not hold that against you in any way. That's what I'm asking for. Yeah. And uh, the <laughs> oncologist I talked to first was on board with that. The surgeon now says, you know what? I'm not going to treat you any differently than an 80-year-old. I honestly think that this is, uh, this is probably going to kill you. I might be able to get all the cancer through surgery. He come out and flat out and say that? Like, he did. Yeah, and this yeah. was after I told him I didn't want to know the odds. I, <laughs> I knew it was not good. Thanks, Doc. Um, yeah, yeah. And I'm like, oh, thanks. Just deflated at that point. Yeah. Um, so I left thinking that, you know, obviously Mayo Clinic is a fantastic system. They've got the best folks there. And I'm thinking to myself, I'm going to I'm going to stick with this system uh, because they're good. They know what they're talking about. And, you know, as I was told by other people, you want the best surgeon they don't need to be your cheerleader. Right. So that's how I left that meeting. Very deflated, but kind of resigned to this is the course of treatment and I'm not really gonna get a lot of encouragement. But I ended up meeting uh, then the surgeon in the original system that I was working with, uh, the system that diagnosed me. And he had more experience. He was very cautiously optimistic. He never told me like, hey, I'm gonna get it all and you're gonna be fine. But he did tell me, listen, I do think you've got a better chance because you're young. I do think you've got a better chance because of your health, because I was in good shape. Yeah. Uh, I ate healthy. I exercised. I really did kind of everything right. But 
I lost the lottery when it came to cancer. Right. Um, and he said, I don't, I can't guarantee that I'm going to get it all, but I'm going to do my damnedest too. And I'm going to give you the best chance possible to survive this. And he was optimistic. He had better experience. So I ended up going with that system. And I was so happy in the long run that I did. So from that point, I, I basically was in, I believe it was the next day to get uh, a surgical port. So I've got one of the remnants of my treatment is right here in the left side of my chest, I've got a port. And that's how medications are put into my body. That's how they take blood samples. Uh, but basically when I decided that this was a system I was going with, I talked to my oncologist, I had a meeting with him and I said, okay, let's get this going. This is what we're doing. And he said, okay, it's going to be about a week before we can get that, that implanted in you. I said, I'm going to show up tomorrow. Yeah. <laughs> I want it tomorrow. I don't care if I have to wait all day, but yeah. that thing's going in me tomorrow. Well, yeah, any yeah. waiting period has to, like, in your mind, you have to be playing this scenario in your head where it's just spreading like crazy, right? Like, are you ever not thinking that? No, no. And that's the way that the, the GI doc that did the second endoscopy explained it is this thing is basically through all the layers of your stomach. It hasn't broken free, but it's barely contained. Yeah. So the way I think of it is there's this thing kind of hiding in the dark, barely contained, and it's going to bust free and it's going to kill me unless I basically take the fight to it right away. And the medical so, system is telling you to sit and wait. Exactly. And that's not good enough. No. Uh, when you're a patient, especially, that's not good enough. So that's why I was, I was sitting there saying, I need that, that port in me tomorrow. And I asked right away, what is the shortest amount of time I can wait before they do chemo through that port? And they said, well, safely speaking, we're talking 24 hours. I said, okay, I'm going to be there Friday morning. That's when chemo is going to start. And that's what happened. I showed up the next day. I waited around. I didn't have to wait for very long. And they got that port in me that morning. And the next morning at eight o'clock, I was there for my first chemo treatments. Wow. So that part of it worked out. Yeah. Your stubbornness has really helped you out. And that's one of the biggest things. So I do mentorship for cancer patients right now. And that's one of the biggest things I try to instill in people is the system is not going to move at a pace that's comfortable for you. No. Uh, the system is going to move at its own pace and that's not good enough. Well, because I, I feel like we're all under the impression that the system's here to do its best for us and that they have what's best for us in, in mind. And it, it, it's just not the case. It's, it's, it does, the system doesn't seem to have a conscious that way. You know, it's just, mm -hmm. it is the way it is. And sometimes it just seems the flaws become so apparent. Um, and you doing these mentorships is that has got to be so helpful. Um, especially you're so fresh out of it too, right? I mean, you just went through this. I mean, this is not that long ago. So yeah, I, I finished up treatment in uh, January of this year. Jesus. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, my, uh, my first four chemos were not a ton of fun. Chemo's not great. It's one of those things that I wouldn't wish on my worst enemy. My, uh, my father was with the first chemo session. My father, uh, and this was just a great way to start things off. So again, I'm there that Friday morning for chemo. Uh, and right as they get the needle into my chest, a nurse walks up to me and says, your father's being taken to the emergency room. We're not sure what's wrong with him but he's got weakness on his left side and he's having trouble walking. And what like, the hell? My dad's having a stroke. My dad's having a heart attack. I don't know what's going on. So I'm scared because my dad's in a bad place. I'm scared because I've got this poison being pumped into my body. 
And I don't know how that's going to be. Um, so I, I'm told repeatedly, you can't get out of the chair. You have to sit there. You're going to have to wait until after this infusion before you can go and see your dad. But they do give me some updates. They tell me that my dad's downstairs. He's just sedated at this point. This it is a nightmare. Being, yeah. <laughs> um, it, it ended up being what we think was a herniated disc. And he just lost it. Like he had some sciatica. Okay. And that made it difficult for him to walk. But the nurses saw him stumble. So they decided to be cautious and bring him down to the emergency room. But still not a good way to start things off. No. Yeah. Um, and chemo is, I'm sure everybody's heard, is not a lot of fun. Um, so basically, uh, within the first few hours of chemo, I started to get sensitive to cold, which is a common effect of the type of chemo that I was going through. Well, so but before you get into the, the, yeah. the, the physical effects of the chemo, I, I'm curious to hear your mental state going into the chemo. Are you... That, yeah, I, I should have touched on that a little bit better. So I, I went into that, uh, you know, that consult with the mail, uh, pretty optimistic. I came out of it pretty deflated. Yeah. But as soon as I got that, uh, that treatment plan, as soon as I knew what the course of action was, and I knew that we were actually going to be actively fighting this and that we were still trying to cure this. Yeah. Uh, and that was a big thing for me. Um, I actually felt really confident. Uh, I honestly, I went into my first chemo in a better place mentally than I had been in quite some time, probably in a couple of years, uh, more optimistic about life, uh, more zest for life. Uh, and really just, I, I was there to fight it and I was there to win. Is it fair to say that like you just got a, a very, very strong purpose to fight something and cause the alternative here is death and it's death yeah. in the very near future. It seems like, yeah. so it, you think that's where it was like, all right, well, you know, I, I really got something to fight here. I got like a, literally a war I'm about to go into. You think that's where it's like, all right, you know, the, the last few years dealing with depression, you got through a divorce. I mean, just so many dominoes kept falling or an avalanche just kept building. You know, maybe this gave you something to be hopeful, something to really fight for and strive for. And uh, you had a course of action laid out in front of you, right? Something planned out like this is all, this is what I got to do, the steps to, to success and to to live the rest of my life, right? Absolutely. You know, I think that there are a few different things at play there. Um, I, I think that part of it was just, you know, I had a target in front of me. I had, I had an enemy and I had a challenge. And when I have those things, I will fight. Um, if somebody tells me it's a, a hard road or if it's impossible, I'm stubborn to the point where I will say, I don't care. I'm going to do it anyways. I'm going to prove you wrong. And that was, I think, part of it. Um, another part of it was, I had had a really bad last few years and I kind of looked at my life as a book uh, or a story. And I just thought to myself, like, what an awful ending to this book. What an awful ending to this story. I can't, I can't let my story end on this low note. Um, I need to beat this. So I've got some good chapters and I've got some good things to talk about because you don't want to end on that. Uh, so I think that all of those things together, just it, it, it gave me a lot of fights. Uh, it gave me a lot of purpose. Uh, and like I said, I'm stubborn. You put one of those things in front of me and I'm going to do my best to prove you wrong. Yeah. So I, I, I felt pretty good going into it. Cause one thing I'm really interested to hear is, and maybe we'll touch on this as, as you continue to go down this story is, um, being confident going into it and having that fight and having that purpose. I'm really curious to hear the, like, if you, we're having these moments of doubt and starting to like get deflated again. Like, Cause it seems like it would be such a, a roller coaster. Yep. And I'd love to hear 
you know, were those moments of doubt and the feelings like maybe I should give up or maybe this is it or just depression really creeping in again and what you did to combat that? Did you have any mantras? Did you have any type of like anything that to get you through those, those uh, moments of doubt? Yeah. I, you know, first of all, one of the things I need to point out is uh, when I was first diagnosed, so before I knew how bad it was, before I knew what we were looking at for treatment, the first thing I did is I went on Reddit and I just searched for stomach cancer. And this is going to sound awful, but I have a really good reason for doing it. I only wanted to read success stories. I only wanted to talk to people who had done well, who had survived this. Uh, who I don't think that sounds with- awful at all. I think that's, that sounds like something I would have done. And yeah, you wanted to hear the, the positives here. Like, yeah. yeah. So I found a guy who uh, was about my age who had gotten through and he was a few years out from his diagnosis. He had the surgery and he was alive and he was thriving. So I reached out to him and I ended up bridging out from there. I ended up looking for survivor stories online. So I ended up just Googling stomach cancer survivor stories. And I came across an organization called Debbie's Dream Foundation, uh, which was founded by a woman who uh, was a Uh, She was a cancer fighter and ended up dying a few years back. But her big thing was she wanted to create this organization to create resources for stomach cancer patients, to raise awareness, to get money for research, uh, and to really just be an overall advocacy agency for stomach cancer patients. And I ended up getting in touch with uh, a number of folks uh, who were just fantastic help. And these were folks that I turned to all the way throughout my diagnosis and my treatment. Whenever I was having doubts, I would, I would get on uh, you know, a text chain with them and I would communicate. And they were fantastic for getting me through this. And that's part of the big reason why I'm, I'm doing my mentorship work that I'm doing now is I figure that all these folks did so much for me to get me through this. I got to do that for other people. I got to, you know, I survived for a reason. I can't squander it. I need to do some good in the world. And I, I want to make sure that A, doctors are listening, that there's uh, research money available, that we have better screening, better treatment for folks, and that we're listening to younger folks who aren't the typical stomach cancer patients. And for those who are diagnosed, I, wanna, I want them to have some hope and I want them to know what the resources are. So I feel that that's my way of giving back at this point. Yeah. Um, but as far as like, uh, mantras, uh, you know, the one thing that I told myself early on was that I needed to make sure that the treatment was always worse than the disease. And I told myself that anything bad that I felt that was going to be from the chemotherapy or from the surgery or from whatever else they threw at me. So whether that is true or not, this is what you were telling yourself. Is that, yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and that really, it worked out pretty well. Um, Now, when I first started out, I really only had that heartburn and the bloating that that lingered. But the week right before I started chemotherapy, I started to have difficulty swallowing. And the reason for that was that tumor was actually 50% around my esophagus and it was constricting it. So I could literally picture that food dropping and getting hung up on that tumor and slowing down the food from entering my stomach. And the other thing that I ended up figuring out, uh, and this really messed with me, uh, was that heartburn and that pain that I felt behind my breastbone was literally stomach acid washing through an ulcerated tumor causing pain. 
So I knew physically what was causing the two biggest things at the time of the, the start of my treatments. But here's where it gets a little bit better. Um, I went in for my, my first chemo. That was, a, you know, that was a train wreck, like I mentioned. I ended up getting cold sensitive. It was unpleasant. You get really tired. You just kind of feel gross in general. Um, and the course of chemo basically dictated that I was going in and sitting in that chair once every two weeks. And then after I sat in that chair for a good six or seven hours, getting all that poison pumped into me, they hooked me up to a, a fanny pack with a pump that would pump an additional medication into me, an additional chemo drug for another 24 hours. So usually you feel pretty bad right after it takes place, but you feel your worst about three days later. And wow. that's usually when you get sick to your stomach, you know, you'll throw up, uh, you'll feel really fatigued. And it wasn't really bad the first round. Uh, and here's the great thing though. I went in with that heartburn, the bloating, uh, food getting caught. And a week after my first infusion, I could swallow perfectly. Wow. Okay. Heartburn was gone. Bloating was gone. I ended up feeling fantastic. So you're uh, physically I, feeling the chemo actually working and doing its job. And yeah, exactly. And that's how I chose to think about it. Yeah. I, I'm not the most positive person in the world. Uh, in fact, I'm usually uh, accused of being a bit of a pessimist. I'd like to say a realist, <laughs> but I felt very optimistic at that because in my mind that chemo worked and it was working already. And if that was round one and I had seven more on top of it, that chemo was going to kick that cancer's ass. Right. So I felt fantastic a week later. Uh, I went out with a buddy. Actually, I went out with a group of buddies. Uh, we had a, a great time. I went out to a brewery, saw some live music. I felt fantastic. And the next week I had my meeting with my oncologist and I said, you know what, doc, I think this is really working. And he said, don't get too optimistic yet. It's really early to be saying that, but you've gone, you've gone through the first round. You've done really well with side effects. I'm thinking that you're maybe going to be spared a lot of the side effects. I think that you might keep your hair. I think that you might not get sick. And I was like, that's fantastic. That's great to hear. And I sat through that second round of chemo and that night my hair fell out. He's telling you not to be overly optimistic as his <laughs> yep. early, but you're doing great, dude. You're going <laughs> to, yeah. So he did the exact opposite of what he was telling you to do. <laughs> but, you know, it, it's fine. And, they, you know, I'm fine with tempering your expectations. Sure, it wasn't yeah, yeah. saying like, dude, no, it's not working at all. Right, right, right. right. Don't, don't, you're going to have ups and downs. Yeah. Don't just think everything is going to work. And I think the, the biggest concern is that, you know, a doctor will think that if I'm, if I'm too optimistic, if I tell you, yes, everything's great, as soon as you get a minor setback, you're going to tank. You know, you're yeah. going to oh, shit, everything that I thought was going well isn't going well. Right. This is actually worse. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, I do thank him for tempering, tempering my expectations a bit. Sure. That makes uh, sense. You know, I, and I make it through the second round. It's a little bit worse. Uh, and I go to sit for my third round. And that's when the despair sets well, in. Well, how much time is spent between each round? Two weeks. Two weeks. Yep, two and weeks. so I'm curious what you're doing in those first two weeks. Like you said, you went out with a bunch of buddies. You went to a brewery. What's your diet like? What's your lifestyle like in those two weeks are you being extra extra healthy trying to sleep as, and rest as much as you can eating as healthy as you can were you so, having a beer at the brewery like what, what was all that like? well I, I was at that point uh i that was the last beer that i had until 
several months later though. Okay. Um, so as far as eating healthy goes, people have different ideas about this. I had eaten pretty healthy throughout most of my adult life, not like super clean, but you know, healthier than the average American for sure. Um, I have a family history of obesity, high blood pressure, like all sorts of stuff. So I figure if I'm going to be a big guy, uh, if this is going to be something that's in my family history, I'm going to be the healthiest big guy I can be. Yeah. Um, so I went into that diagnosis to begin with a healthy guy. And again, people have different mindsets about what you should do during this diagnosis and do during treatments. And you'll hear people say, you don't eat sugar, sugar feeds the cancer, you know, you eat super clean. Um, and my oncologist and the nutritionist basically told me, listen, the biggest thing for you is you're going to lose a lot of weight if you were successful in this treatment. You're going to get your stomach cut out. You're going to go through eight rounds of chemo that 60% of people can't finish because it's that brutal. Wow. Um, you're going to be sick. You're going to lose weight. You're going to lose muscle. So well, I don't hold care hold what you can't finish because they tap out like this is too painful yeah. or can't finish. Yeah. Okay. Uh, you know, a combination of tapping out or, you know, the one thing about chemo is every time you go in, you get a full metabolic panel, blood panel, and they look to see basically how healthy is your body, how healthy is your immune response. And a huge portion of people, they are, their, their, their blood levels, their blood work is bad enough to where they just have to discontinue. Right. So I ended up taking the stance that I'm not going to eat super healthy. I'm going to eat as much as I can when I feel good enough. I'm going to take in as much protein, but Hey, if that's, not, if that doesn't work for me, I'm going to eat junk food if I have to, to keep right. my weight up. Yeah. Uh, so I went into my diagnosis at two thirty, and I would lose anywhere from 10 to 20 pounds, uh, over the course of a round of chemo. Holy but shit. by the time I got back, because there's so much dehydration that happens too, even if you're not throwing up, there's diarrhea and just the yeah. fact that you can't take in as much food and water as you should. You know, they were recommending three you, liters you of water. You can't because you just don't feel well? Is that exactly. like, just, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, you just feel gross. Um, and later on, nausea got bad enough to where eating just wasn't something that could take place. Got it. Uh, but they, they recommended three liters of water minimum, preferably a gallon of water a day and minimum of 3000 calories. And when you're sick going through chemo, you don't want to do that. It's, it's a lot of calories. Yeah. Awful. Um, so I would eat when I could in the week that I felt bad. So the week directly after chemo was, was infused, you feel awful. And the week after that, the week leading up to the next round, you usually feel kind of good or at least better. I would eat as much as I could during that week. And every single round of chemo, I came back weighing at least as much as I did during the previous round. So I started out at 2.30. I had my surgery at 2.37, which is unheard <laughs> of for somebody to actually gain weight. During wow. Yeah. Especially with stomach cancer, which is yeah. not usually conducive to eating. That's crazy. Um, but I got to that uh, the morning of the third round. And I showed up and they said, your, your blood is, your blood work is not good. Uh, your liver enzymes are up and they're up to the point where you're in the danger zone. Like you're risking actual liver damage if we continue right now. Hmm. So what we're going to do is we're going to have to give you a week off and we're going to test you again 
after that week. And if your blood, if your blood work looks okay, then we'll go forward with the next round of chemo. If it doesn't, you might be done. I'm assuming uh, your liver enzymes are so high because of the chemo or because of the cancer. Here's or the they thing. don't know. That's why the despair sets in. Yeah. Uh, chemo is really, really bad on a lot of your organs. Uh, and it especially is bad on your liver. You know, your liver processes so much of the poisons that go into your body. And that chemo is going to throw things out of whack. The other thing is the biggest places for spread for gastric cancer uh, ends up being the liver, lungs, lymph nodes, but those are kind of the big things. You always look for the liver. So anything that's suspicious about the liver makes you wonder if it's spread. Yeah. So at that point in time, mentally, I think the chemo is working, but there's nothing scientifically to prove it. There's no scan that shows that the cancer's gotten smaller, nothing like that. No. Uh, so my mind kind of spirals a bit and I start thinking, well, maybe the cancer has spread. Uh, and during that time, I ended up reaching out to a friend of mine who I met through all of this, uh, who was a stomach cancer survivor. And, uh, his name was Jason is Jason. Uh, so a little bit of a spoiler, he's still around and doing well. <laughs> um, but I reach out to Jason and, you know, Jason tells me as best as he can, like, don't worry about it too much. Uh, you know, you don't know what's going on. Don't despair. But I asked Jason how he's doing as he's just going in for a scan and they found something that looks suspicious in him. And he ended up going in for emergency surgery because he had a bowel obstruction. So he was one of my lifelines. And I'm thinking, you know, again, my whole idea is I'm, I'm kind of associating with these folks who are success stories. And one of my success stories is potentially falling apart at this point. Uh, and that was very difficult for me. Jason ended up being okay. Uh, even though they thought there was this, uh, you know, tumor in his bowels, it ended up just being scar tissue. Everything was fine. He's cancer free to this day. Uh, but at that time, that was very difficult for me. And so I'm on the internet at that point, like looking at, you know, are there like medicinal rem uh, remedies for liver problems? Like what can I do to maybe get my liver enzymes back down? I ended up reading some research uh, and peer-reviewed research, not just, you know, the BS that you find on the internet. Not some like 20-year-old's uh, blog telling you to get <laughs> some supplements. or <laughs> Exactly. Uh, it, it ended up being a supplement, but it was a supplement that was uh, recommended by the American Cancer Society. And it's called Milk Thistle. Yep. Uh, and it was recommended for folks going through cancer who have liver issues. I've, take, uh, I've taken some. <laughs> so... I, you know, and I don't know if it did the trick or not, but I went to the, the local pharmacy, I picked up a, a, a bottle of it, and I started taking that and my liver enzymes were not normal, but they were within the safe high zone. So above what a normal person should expect, but not in the danger zone anymore. Uh, so I was able to continue with that treatment and my liver enzymes never went to the danger zone again. Nice. Uh, so maybe milk thistle worked. Maybe it was just my liver adjusting. Uh, I don't know. But I was able to have that third round. Uh, and to back up a bit, the plan was that I was going to do six rounds of chemo, then have my surgery, which was going to be a total removal of my stomach. Um, my doctor, though, after that third round said, you know what, I don't think we're going to get to six rounds before surgery. So we're going to see if we can get a fourth round in. And then I'm going to send you for surgery early. So I had been thinking around, you know, November, December of 2019, I would have my surgery. 
And then suddenly in August, I'm being told, you're going to probably have your surgery in a month. Wow. <laughs> so and are they, the, the reason why they're pushing it like that is just because they don't think the chemo is doing what it needed to do? It, it they, was take- yeah, they, they thought that the chemo was probably doing a lot of damage. To yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, and they thought that my, my liver especially probably wouldn't survive. Uh, and, you know, there's, there's no point in surviving the surgery if I come out of it with a liver that can't support me. And when you're a stomach cancer patient, they're not going to give you another liver. So right. I, I'm on my only set of organs. Nobody's going to give me a new set. Uh, so I got to do the best I can to keep my organs healthy. Um, but during that time, the other thing that I did to kind of help my mind uh, hold on to that original mantra that the, sur- that the treatment is always going to be worse than the disease was that any time I experienced any pain, and I did, I experienced pain basically right where I knew the tumor was. I told myself that is that chemo actually hurting the tumor. It's not the tur- tumor hurting me, that's the tumor getting hurt. And folks I told this to probably thought I was crazy, uh, but that's what I held on to because I had to. Uh, I had to keep that positive thinking and I had to really visualize it. You know, as I said before, I visualized this as almost like this monster hiding in the dark that I had to kill. Um, so I got into that, that third round. I got through the third round. I had the consult with my, uh, my oncologist. And the decision was made at that point, we're going to put you in for a scan. So this would be the first scan that I had since my initial that said things hadn't spread. And most people go into that really scared and really convinced that things had spread. And I went into that, and this is where I might get a little bit emotional. Um, I went into, into that scan thinking it's going to be good. It's going to be a positive scan and that cancer is going to be dead. And I went in, I sat through it. I came back out and I felt really good going to my next consult. And I ended up sitting down with my oncologist and according to the scan, everything was dead. Um, the, the cancer had not spread. There was no sign of anything in my lymph nodes. And there was, no, there was no metabolic activity suggestive of cancer anywhere in my body. Um, that happens in a minority of patients. Uh, you hope for a positive response to chemotherapy. You hope for chemotherapy to, to stop the spread. And the real reason they do chemo is because they're concerned that small, like small clumps of cancer cells break off, they go elsewhere in your body. And the chemo is strong enough to kill it before it takes hold and and creates another tumor. You don't give somebody chemo because you think the chemo is going to kill everything. And that happens in less than a quarter of cases, uh, significantly less than a quarter of cases. And that's what happened in mine. I had the best possible response to that, that chemo. And when I was visualizing that that chemo was actually hurting the tumor, and that all of the bad things happening were because of the treatment and not from the cancer, that's exactly what happened. Um, you know, you don't know how much positivity plays into these things, but I'd like to think that that played a big role. So there I was after three rounds, uh, knowing that things looked good, I went in for my fourth round of chemo, and a few weeks later, uh, September 25th, 2019, I'm slated for my, my gastrectomy. And, uh, it's a scary thing to think about, uh, you know, up until a few years ago, uh, well, even up until now, I mean, you were looking at about a 10% chance of death 
uh, during the surgery itself. Larger centers, more experienced surgeons have a much better rate than that, but across the board, you were looking at about a 10% chance of not surviving that. I didn't care. Uh, you know, I said from the beginning, I was gonna go out swinging. So uh, as, as morbid as it sounds, the prospect of going into a surgery and not waking up from it is not that bad considering the alternative of a slow death from cancer. Uh, so I was, I was fine with those odds. Um, Beyond that, my surgeon told me, you know, is there a chance you'll die on the operating table? Of course, anytime you get anesthesia, anytime you go in for a surgery, no matter what it is, there's always a chance you're not gonna make it out of it. I think you are. I think you've got a really good chance of making it through it. I think you've got a really good chance of making it through uh, with minimal complications. And it's really kind of brutal what the surgery is. Uh, you know, they cut you from your sternum all the way to your navel. They cut your stomach out whole. Uh, they throw that in the garbage because you're not you're not using that anymore. Uh, <laughs> you, they send it off to the lab. They dissect it. They try to figure out as much as they can about the cancer. Um, but that stomach is gone. You're not getting it back. You're never going to have a stomach again. Uh, they cut up your small intestines. Uh, they do what's called a Roux-en-Y reconstruction, which is they basically take the uh, the part of your intestine where the bile ducts are. They move that a little bit further up the tract and they take your intestines and they basically plug it up to your esophagus. So I've got no stomach, I've got no area for storage, I've got nothing like that. Uh, I've just got a big, well, a big incision with a really clean scar um, and no stomach now. But the actual surgery itself, so I, you know, I show up the day of um, and I'm not really all that worried about it. You know, I know that I'm basically going to sign some paperwork, but as soon as they put that needle in me and they put me under, that's it. You know, my, my whole role in this was to give that surgeon the healthiest, the, the best body that I could. So stay as healthy as I could come into that with enough weight, like come into that in good cardiovascular shape. So I, I worked out all throughout this whenever I felt well enough to. Uh, my last gym session was literally the day before my surgery. Wow. What did the workouts look like? What were you doing? So I had, uh, you know, as I mentioned before, I was always a big guy and I always really had to keep on top of my fitness. So I tried to put on as much muscle as possible throughout my adult life. And I also ran, which was kind of a joke because I'm not built for running. Um, so my workouts were running on the track and then doing a five, three, one kind of power lifting uh, workout regimen. Uh, so I focused on kind of the four core lifts. I focused on bench press, squats, deadlifts, and military press. And that's what I did up until maybe a month before my surgery when I felt well enough to. And the last month, it was like I would go to the gym and I would just do whatever I could, no. whatever I wanted to do, because I didn't know if I was going to ever be able to do those lifts ever again. Right. So light, uh, light, lightweight stuff. And ah, you know, I wish I could say I was really taking <laughs> it, it, it easy, but definitely the last session I was in, it was just like, you know what, put as much weight up as you can, because I nice. don't, you don't know if you can ever again. Yeah. 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 Okay. So I did what I could to, to keep the muscle up. I definitely lost muscle because of chemo, I kept the weight on, but I, I looked like I was a chunky guy. Uh, yeah, yeah. I, I definitely wasn't in as good a shape going into the surgery as I was when I was diagnosed, but I was in 
as good a shape as I could expect given the circumstances. Yeah. So I went into that surgery. Uh, they told me, you know, five to seven hours is what you're looking at for the surgery. And the one thing you keep in your head through that is if I wake up an hour later, something went wrong uh, because they tell you right away, what we're going to do is we're going to, we're going to scope you. So they're going to do basically exploratory laparoscopy. Uh, we're going to put that scope in you. We're going to look around for any spread. And if anything looks even remotely off, we close you up and you're all done. You go home and that's the end. Uh, there's no chance for a curative treatment at that point. We'll do what we can to keep you comfortable, but that's it. Um, so my mind right away going into that is I need to wake up five hours later at least. Uh, if I wake up five hours later, it means they did something. If I wake up an hour or two later, it means they didn't get what they needed to get. I woke up like 10 hours later. Uh, <laughs> and that's the first thing I asked. You know, I pop out of, uh, of, of anesthesia and I asked the nurse, how long was I out for? And she tells me 10 hours. And I'm like, great, my stomach's <laughs> not there anymore. Why did it take 10 hours to really explain this? I need to backtrack one more time. And I'm sorry, I'm not telling the most linear story here. No, 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 no worries. But one of the things that I, uh, I really didn't like about the surgeon that I did the, uh, the second opinion with was that, first of all, he, kinda, he had kind of a pessimistic attitude uh, and maybe honestly more of a realistic attitude that I would have embraced at any other time in my life, but not that day, not that time, not that fight. Uh, but the way that he approached things, I thought he was going to play things by the book. And I really felt that he was the type of guy where if he saw something that was off, that was going to be it. He wasn't going to go any further. He was just going to close me up and send me home. And the thing that I liked about the guy that I ended up going with is he really felt like somebody who was going to fight. And you look at like the bios of most oncologists, most surgeons, and they have a very elaborate bio. Uh, they talk about their accomplishments. Uh, they talk about their research. And Dr. Tuttle, who was the, the surgeon that I went with, he had all those things. He had all the accomplishments listed out on his CV, but his bio just said, I hate cancer. <laughs> and when I talked to him, he really came across as the type of guy where he wasn't just going to you know, say, well, that's it. This guy's done. Um, so that's important to know. Uh, because when they went into me, they found spots on my diaphragm that were suspicious. They found spots on my abdominal wall that were suspicious. And the way that the surgeon explained it to me is if I had opened somebody out for, up for a you know, general uh, abdominal surgery, I might take a second look at those, but I'd say, you know, that's probably nothing. But for a gastric cancer patient, that's probably cancer. Yeah. Um, but he didn't close me up. He biopsied every single one of those spots sequentially. He had the lab on standby to do a pathology report on anything he saw that was even remotely suspicious. So he would take a sample, he'd send it to the lab, they would do an instant uh, analysis of it, and they would bring back the result, and then he would move forward. They biopsied multiple spots that were all benign. So it took two hours longer than they would have expected. That's why. Um, then they opened me up. They did the surgery. That all went fine. Um, that was my surgery. Wow. 
Um, I wake up 10 hours later and, uh, you know, it, it's funny. You think you just lay there in the, in the bed and you're going to be there for a while, but that's not how modern surgery works. Uh, even though I'm, you know, I'm held together literally with glue and tape at that point. <laughs> I don't have stitches, no external stitches. I've got glue and a strip of tape over me. Really? Uh, and they tell you, you're getting up out of bed and you're walking around, even if it's only five feet because it's so important uh, for a surgery patient to get up and move. Uh, you know, they're finding now that bed rest is not good for you. Uh, they want you to get up, they want you to use your lungs, they want you to keep everything moving, they want you to keep the blood, the blood flowing. Uh, so they had me up and moving around that night. That's uh, crazy. Yeah, yeah, and I mean, <laughs> of course, my mind is like, well, my guts are just gonna like that. That little piece of scotch tape you got over me is just gonna rip open, and the guts are gonna fly everywhere. And you know, you're gonna have to put that in. Why you got me up and walking around? Yeah. Um, but everything held together. Um, everything worked out. Uh, they told me that I'd probably be in the hospital for ten days, start to finish, and I was out in a week. Um, you know, you don't, you can't eat food right away. So, you know, they, they basically put you on no, no food, no drink, no nothing for the first few days. Um, if you're lucky, they'll give you some ice chips to suck on so that your mouth doesn't get too dry. Are you like on an IV or anything? Or it's literally, you're not nothing, nothing. Okay. nothing. Um, so they've got me on, uh, you know, there's a feeding tube in, but they're not using it at that point. Right. Um, they've got it there for a few days down the road when kind of you're, to, to be frank, so your guts can heal back together enough so that they don't just rip apart the first time food goes in. Um, so a few days later, they end up getting me on, uh, on I, well, not on IV, but on the, uh, the uh, J-tube, it's called, uh, to get some actual nutrients into me. And that goes off okay. Uh, they end up getting me through that the first few days. And I'm one to push myself. So I wanted food. I wanted water. I wanted everything as soon as possible. And uh, a few days later, they let me uh, at least have some soft food, some broth, stuff like that. A couple days later, they've got me eating mashed potatoes and some fish. Not a lot, um, but some. And literally a week after I'm admitted for that surgery, I'm discharged home. Um, and the other fun thing about it is uh, opiates don't work for me. So you, know, they, you think you've got that pain pump, you can push the button and, and it makes everything feel better. It, that doesn't do anything for me. So I was on like basically a, a really strong ibuprofen in the hospital and that's all they discharged me on was uh, basically extra strength ibuprofen. Um, the pain was super manageable compared to what I expected. Um, I, I had worse pain from herniated discs in my back. Uh, it was honestly pretty manageable and I was sent home myself. Uh, I didn't need, you know, nursing assistance. I didn't need anything. Um, I was very fortunate. Yeah. What, what date is this? I was discharged on October 2nd. Um, okay. And the other big thing is, you know, my surgeon, even though he was optimistic, he was very much a realist and he said everything looked great in the surgery. But statistically speaking, there's probably a 50% chance, given how big your tumor was, given how much it pervaded into your, into your stomach lining, given the fact it was basically bursting out into your abdominal cavity when we caught it, there's probably a 50% chance that this spread into your lymph nodes at least, and that you're going to have some, you know, some serious risk of recurrence. Um, and the nice thing about my surgeon, and this is something you don't run into, 
is my surgeon every morning. I would wake up and he would be there when I woke up. Um, and he would be there just to check on me, uh, to tell me how he thought I was doing, uh, and just to, to comfort me, which yeah. was fantastic. Yeah, very much a real human being and very, very different from what everybody told me to expect out of a surgeon. Um, and the second to last day, he tells me, uh, actually, no, it was the day of my discharge. Uh, you know, I had been asking about my pathology reports, you know, the, the kind of final diagnosis. So they take your stomach, they cut it up. Uh, and also part of the surgery is they take out a couple dozen lymph nodes from your abdominal cavity and they dissect those to see how far the cancer has spread. And he shows up the morning that I'm going to be discharged. First of all, to tell me that he's approving me for discharge. And second of all, to, to tell me about the pathology reports. And he tells me the cancer didn't spread, didn't get into your lymph nodes. Um, and you've had uh, not quite a complete response to chemo, but about as good as we could expect. Um, wow. So the tumor had shrunk to the point where it, it had barely pervaded into my stomach lining. Um, there were only a few rogue cancer cells still left in the, uh, in the original tumor. And if I would have gone through with those last few rounds of chemo, like was originally planned, it would have been completely dead. Um, that being said, you do the surgery because you don't want it to come back. Uh, right. so everything really worked out exactly the way it should have. Right. <laughs> <laughs> what a ride. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, um, it definitely is. And I mean, it's not like everything was smooth sailing after that. Uh, you know, I, a week after, well, not a week after, a few weeks after my surgery, you know, everything had been going well, I'm back home, I'm eating pretty well. Um, a week after my surgery, I actually went to, uh, I went to a comedy show, which was great. Uh, I saw some friends there, I ate a little bit of food out in public, which was something I didn't know if I'd ever be able to do again. Yeah, because you get these kind of scare stories that you're never going to be able to eat more than uh, a tablespoon of food at a time, um, and things wow. are going to be bad forever. And some people are on feeding tubes for years or even forever. Um, I got discharged without my feeding tube being used. Um, I was eating solid food pretty quick. Everything was going pretty well for about three weeks, and then out of nowhere, I just start puking left and right, and I couldn't hold down any food. Um, and again, that, that thing about surviving cancer is the first thing you think of is like, holy shit, the, the tumor came back already and I've got an obstruction someplace and you get scared and you don't know what's going on. So I'm in, in talks with the surgeon right away. I'm in talk with my oncologist right away. And after a few days, they tell me, you got to go to the ER. You know, you need to get this checked out. If anything, just because you're not able to take down fluids, you're not able to take down food and we need to get you on an IV and we need to get your feeding tube. I'm pouring uh, another glass real quick. Just, oh, go for uh, it. You're, you're stressing me out. <laughs> <laughs> this is crazy shit, man. <laughs> so I, I get readmitted. Uh, I think it was just about three weeks uh, after my surgery or after my discharge from uh, the hospital. And I'm scared shitless. I don't know what's going on. All I know is... I'm supposed to go, I'm supposed to be seen by my surgical team. And unfortunately, I have to sit through the waiting line at the ER. Uh, they don't look at the notes in the, in the file. They don't look at the notes in my chart that say, admit me right away, contact my surgeon. They make me wait. So I sat there for probably like eight hours before I finally get in. 
weak as hell because I haven't been able to keep food down for like three or four days. Actually, it might have been closer to a week, to be honest. Um, and I finally get admitted and it's not my surgical team that sees me. It's just, you know, an ER doc doing the best that she could. Uh, and they do a quick ultrasound and they see that my spleen's inflamed and my pancreas is inflamed and spleen gets inflamed if there's infection. Uh, pancreas is another spot that, that uh, gastric cancer spreads to. And so I get worried again. I don't know what's going on. Um, and I don't get put on fluids right away. I don't get put on uh, my feeding tube right away. And I wake up the next morning still not know, knowing what's going on. They end up sending me in for a swallow test. So they, they make you swallow this disgusting stuff that makes, you, that makes even a healthy person want to throw up. And they give that to me. And I'm barely able to choke that stuff down and keep it down long enough to actually get the test accomplished. And they end up finding out that my guts aren't working right. Uh, yeah. There's a buildup of fluid. And that's another big warning sign for somebody who's got any sort of abdominal cancer. Um, and uh, food is not passing through the way it should. Uh, so initially, they're concerned that there might be an obstruction. They're concerned that maybe my uh, part of my intestines are dead or not functioning. They don't know what's going on. Uh, I end up seeing my surgeon a couple days later, and he ends up telling me, "Listen, um, you know, we don't we don't know exactly what's going on, uh, but I think it's probably an infection." I think it's probably an infection from the, just a side effect from the surgery. These things happen. We're going to give you some antibiotics. The good news is you've got that feeding tube. We're going to keep that in you. You're going to have to rely on that because you still can't hold down food. So I ended up getting discharged, still throwing up, still feeling like garbage, uh, but at least knowing it's not cancer back already. Right. Uh, Statistically speaking, it shouldn't have been anyways, but again, that's always in the back of your mind. And, and just for one more thing to go wrong, I end up getting on the feeding tube, and a few weeks later, my feeding tube then gets infected. Ugh. The switch pops holding it in. It starts to slip out. I have to like physically hold it in and tape it up because this thing has popped out like five or six inches. I know it's barely held in at this point, and it's going directly into my intestines. I don't really want like a unbandaged hole going directly through my my side into my intestines <laughs> yeah so i contact my uh my surgeon who had given me his home number uh that's the kind of guy this guy is i contact him he tells me you know come in right away in the morning i'll get you in before my first clinical meeting and we'll figure it out i show up that morning i'm just in immense pain at that point from this infection and he takes one look at it. He says, you know what, you're back eating because I was at least eating some at that point. Uh, and he says, at this point, I think that feeding tube is doing you more harm than good. And uh, the thing that they don't really warn you about when it comes to any sort of tube, whether it be a feeding tube or a drainage tube in your body, there's not really the, a complicated medical procedure to remove it. Uh, <laughs> as it was pointed out to me by the uh, the resident that removed my drainage tube it's basically pole starting a lawnmower and Ugh. i when he told me this and that's literally what they do is they just brace you and they just grab it and they rip it out wow 
Uh, so that's that's what my doctor did as I'm sitting there. Just like <laughs> rips the thing out, throws it in the garbage. Was that painful? That has to be painful. Uh, no. No? No, it's really not. Wow. Uh, the, the feeding tube was barely held in. The drainage tube, though, started off on the right side, basically my, my right oblique area, and it snaked all the way up my body. It came across the midline of my abdomen, and it was actually up in the left side of my chest. So when they pulled that out, it didn't hurt, but it was like somebody was ripping a tapeworm out. And I could uh, feel like, I could feel it like snake through my uh, mouth. <laughs> and you don't feel pain inside, like in right. your actual abdomen, but you feel the pressure. So I could feel like the resistance of that thing just being pulled through. And it, it was the most unnerving experience of the entire, <laughs> of the entire ordeal. Uh, so by comparison, the feeding tube coming out was no big deal. Uh, he pulled it out and the pain, the pain that I had been experiencing from the, uh, from the infection itself uh, was gone immediately. I felt great. Wow. I mean, all things considered. Sure. Um, I was able to eat again. Uh, and I, I wasn't able to get in as many calories as, as I needed to, to keep my weight up, but I had went from 237 to about 215 over the course of, uh, about two and a half months. I, I was doing better than expected. And I ended up having another consult with my oncologist and I didn't quite know what my oncologist was going to have me do because the original plan was six rounds of chemo. Then we're going to do the surgery and then you're all done. Well, those six rounds didn't happen. I got four. So knowing that I had a really good pathology report, knowing that the chemo had done a really good job, I wasn't sure if they were going to recommend any more chemo or not. And I went and sat down with my oncologist. This would have been November of uh, 2019. And I said, so, you know, what are we doing? Are we doing more chemo? What would you recommend? He said, you know, you don't have to do more chemo but I think you should do more chemo. And the reason I think you should do more chemo is the day that you came and you sat down in my office, you told me, I want you to throw the kitchen sink at me. I want you to do everything you can to make sure this cancer is dead and doesn't come back. And he said, the last thing I would ever want is for us to be here in six months with a recurrence of your cancer and to both look at each other and say, I wish we would have done more. No. I would rather know that if this ever comes back, we can both say we did everything in our power to make sure. And he said, I don't think it's going to come back. I think that you're probably going to be okay whether you do the second half of chemo or not, but I would rather you did the chemo. No. And he said, if you do it, you're going to have a bad holiday season this year. You're not going to have a good Thanksgiving. You're not going to have a good Christmas. You're probably going to be sick at home, but you're doing this so that you've got a lot of good holidays coming up and you've got a lot of good time with friends and family and as sick and weak and, you know, just done with treatment as, as I was at that point, that was, I think what I needed to hear. And, and it, it didn't talk me into something that I didn't want to do. It really confirmed what I had wanted to do all along. Yeah. Um, and I'm glad that that's the route we took. Um, so, I started up chemo again, right, I think a week before Thanksgiving. And during the first four rounds of chemo, yeah, I got a little bit nauseous, but I never threw up. Um, I threw up the day I started the second half of chemo and I threw up at least daily for months. I went from weighing 237 at the time of my surgery 
215 at the time of starting chemo. And within two months, I was down to 150 pounds. Holy shit. At the best. I stopped weighing myself at some point in time because I didn't want to know anymore. Um, And no matter what I did, uh, I couldn't eat. Anytime I put anything in my body, I would just throw up. And chemo just completely messes with your palate, uh, the way you experience uh, tastes of food, texture of food, and anything I put in me aside from, you know, I I can take down a little bit of pureed soup and that was about it. Wow. Uh, I just threw up and threw up and threw up and I threw up for months. And it's something I struggled with for even months after chemo ended. Um, And that's another thing is chemo is not over just because you had your last infusion. Uh, It takes a while for your body to actually flush that out of your system. It takes a while for your your body to adjust uh, and to get over those effects. So I went into it thinking I would feel pretty decent a few weeks later or a month later. But the truth is every round was worse. All the effects were cumulative and they lingered for months. So I didn't get to the point where I could really eat consistently without throwing up until middle of this summer. Wow. Uh, It took a while. Uh, And I didn't even feel, start to feel even remotely decent until spring of this year. Uh, That's when I was able to at least feel like I could be physically active again uh, and at least do something. What was the mental state like going through? So that was all the physical things that you were feeling mentally. How were you doing through, through that whole course there? Cause you obviously know, I kicked myself. Yeah. Yeah. Go, go well, I was going to say, yeah. Like, were you regretting it? And you know, you obviously went through it. It sounds like you were being tormented because <laughs> it's not something you necessarily needed, but you know, it was more of like for insurance. Right. Yeah. Uh, and the, the recurrence rate for stomach cancer is so significant. You know, you're talking about, uh, for somebody who makes it through the surgery, the vast majority of them have a recurrence of their stomach cancer. Uh, So really being proactive in uh, ensuring that it doesn't come back is a very important thing. So I didn't regret that, uh, but I kicked myself for all those times I told everybody like, yeah, you know, again, that mantra that the cure has always got to be worse than the disease. It was really bad. Yeah. That cure was awful. It was uh, a lot worse. The treatment was horrendous. Uh, yeah. And it was vastly worse than anything I experienced from the cancer. Wow. Uh, so I kicked myself a bit and definitely the despair was there because I went from, you know, prior to surgery, I could at least go out when I was feeling well and I could see people to some degree. That last half, I couldn't work at all. Uh, I was just sick as hell. I was puking constantly. I couldn't leave my house for more than like 15, 20 minutes, minutes at a time. And it was usually because I had to go to the grocery store or had to go to the pharmacy for something. Right. Uh, so my, my mindset was bad. You know, I was back to being down, being happy that I was alive and being happy that the cancer wasn't back uh, and that I was free of that cancer, but still down, uh, still yeah. not feeling great. Uh, and it took a while to get over that. That's for sure. I bet. Um, the feeling down, I mean, it, it, there's got to be a million reasons to feel down at that point. But are you, are you going through any of the typical why me stuff? The the why me of why did I get cancer? Yeah. Or, not, know, not, or, or just, I guess, everything. You know, not, yeah. Not just, just everything. Like why? I, I think there's two why me's there. Uh, yeah. And one of them was a very simple answer for me. 
Um, the why me of why did I get cancer? I didn't stress out over it. Um, I led a pretty healthy life and I figured that this was probably genetics. No. I got a full genetic screen and I had no markers or mutations associated with any type of cancer. Um, I lost the lottery, or I guess you could look at it. I, I won the worst lottery you could think of. Um, so I stopped thinking about, you know, the, the whole why is me. I didn't blame myself because I know that there's really no utility in that. Yeah. Um, it's unfortunate. People get cancer and it sucks. Um, and it happened to me. And yeah. part of me was like, well, yeah, I've got shit luck anyways. Of course I'm going to get cancer in you know, my mid thirties. Um, it was a, a little bit of sick humor to me. Um, the, the why me that hurt the most though, that was more difficult is, you know, I'm sitting here, I'm a guy in his mid thirties. I'm not married. I don't have any kids. Um, and I'm looking at all these other people who are diagnosed who are around my age and they've got kids, they've got families. And, you know, in, in one case, there was a woman who was beloved by the cancer community who was my age, who was diagnosed at the same stage, who had kids, and her cancer ended up coming back and progressing. And uh, I'm not going to claim to have met her, but her story was one that impacted so many people. And she died right before my surgery, and her funeral was the day of my surgery. Sheesh. So when I think of the why me, it's not why did I get cancer, it's why did I survive? Yeah. And somebody like this didn't. Uh, somebody who was a great advocate, somebody who was a mother and a wife uh, and a veteran as well. Uh, why did this person die? And here I am. I'm still here. So a bit of like um, a survivor's guilt of some sort. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and I think that that's something that's pretty common for those of us that make it through. And I'm by no means out of the woods. Things have been fantastic. All my scans have been clear. Um, but I have to reconcile all of this and I have to reconcile that I'm here and there are others who maybe deserve to be alive more. Um, and when I brought that up to one of the survivors uh, that uh, I've spent a lot of time talking to, uh, her name is Melanie and she's a decade out from her diagnosis at stage four. Um, and wow. had a miracle response to chemo, had her stomach removed because she had great, such a great response. She's here a decade later. And she basically said, honey, don't you ever tell me that you should be dead and somebody else should be alive. Don't ever say that. You're here. You're here for a reason. Do the best with it. And I took that to heart. You know, if I'm going to be here, if I'm going to survive, I can't just say like, well, cool, I'm going to go back to living my life and I'm going to forget about this chapter of my life can't really do that. Um, so the way that I reconcile me being here and other people not being here is that I need to, I need to do something good in their memory. And for me, that's the advocacy work that I'm doing now. It's, you know, mentoring cancer patients. It's uh, advocating for research. Uh, this last February, I was on Capitol Hill uh, trying to directly advocate uh, with members of the legislature for cancer research money. Um, those are the things that I do. Uh, so when I ask why me, that's, that's the why of it for me. Yeah. You got to do something. I mean, I think the depression is really easy to fall back into otherwise. Yeah. Sure. Well, yeah. And that's, 
you have a choice there, right? You have a choice of, of looking at it one way or another and mm-hmm. why choose that alternative? That, that's a big part of this podcast for me is to get into the, the psyche. You're very different from a lot of the other guests that I've had on. It's always been much more into a sports context, but uh, I named this podcast Cubicle Athlete and I think you embody that. You know, I'm not a professional athlete, but I'd like to take a lot of their lessons and apply it to my life. And your lessons are much grander, I think, than any professional athlete can give and like what their mindset or psyche is in in the middle of a game or something like that. Uh, Because to me, I always looked at as the metaphor for life. And you actually really went through, I don't want to call it a game, but you know, you you won that that game, I guess, right? Or you you're winning currently, mm-hmm. right? I mean, at the end of the day, we're all going to die, and I think that's yep. something that uh, I've uh, I've had a, a weird relationship with death, an obsession with my own mortality, and uh, it seems like your relationship with death. That's one of the things I definitely want to touch on before we go is just how. I guess just what your relationship with death is now and how you look at it, because the whole memento Mori thing that uh, you were talking about on that Reddit thread, that's what really caught my attention to, you know, you have the ring, you said you have a ring of, yeah. So, okay. So before I go any further, that's something I really want to touch on is, was it at your diagnosis? You got the bottle of scotch. I got two things. The, uh, so right after I was diagnosed um, again, I told myself I wasn't going to, I wasn't going to die to this prior to the diagnosis had been uh, invited to a, a scotch tasting, an art big scotch tasting uh, with a buddy of mine who's also a whiskey fan. And I was debating not going after the diagnosis because I was down, but I was like, you know what? I'm going to beat this thing. Like I, I have to, I'm going to do it. I'm not going to end on this note. This is not the last chapter of my life. This is not how my story is going to end. So I went to that tasting. I found a scotch that I really liked, which is art big and they were doing this thing where if you bought a bottle of scotch at the tasting, they would engrave it for you if you wanted. So if you wanted to buy it as a gift for somebody, you could do that. And I bought myself a bottle of scotch as a gift for myself. And uh, I had them engrave it with, and you're not going to be able to make it out too easily. Maybe you will. Congratulations for beating cancer. And my plan was once this cancer was out of me, once I was through with treatments, this is how I celebrate. This is my gift to myself and something that I share with those who went through this fight with me. Um, so I bought myself that. And I also bought myself this ring, which is uh, inscribed with the uh, Memento Mori uh, script. And the whole idea behind that is, you know, no matter what, we're all mortal, we're all gonna die. Uh, and we shouldn't forget that. And it doesn't have to be necessarily a sad or depressing thing. Um, this is a reminder that I'm not always going to be here and also that I don't know when my time is going to be up. Um, and I lived my entire life up until that point thinking I've got decades to do what I want to do. I you know, worked my ass off my entire life. I put in way too many hours in the office and aspects of my life always suffered uh, as a result of that. And so this was a reminder that I don't know when I'm going to when I'm going to have my time be up. Uh, I don't know when I'm going to be gone. I don't know how much time I have left. So uh, I really need to keep that in mind. I need to remember that it, it could be my time at any point. So I need to live my life like every day could be its last. That doesn't mean I'm jumping out of a plane every day or anything like that. And quite frankly, COVID has put a, a, a stop to a lot of what I, I would have liked to have done. 
Um, but it, it's a good reminder that I need to live my life like that. I need to remember that I need to live in the moment and I need to really cherish the time that I have uh, yeah. and really have it have meaning. Sure. So having said that for you, is that like you setting more goals for you to accomplish career wise, or is it way more so of like vacationing? I want to do this. I want to see this place. I want to travel the world. I want to, what route are you taking there? You know, I think that uh, the grand plans of travel, uh, they're definitely there. Yeah. Uh, I have a lot of things I'd like to learn how to do. I have wanted to uh, learn how to fly a plane for a long time. I want to learn how to scuba dive. I wanted to learn how to play the guitar. Um, and uh, the first step I was going to take was learning how to scuba dive. So I went and paid for lessons. Uh, I paid for those the beginning of March and yeah. then COVID hit and everything shut down. So I haven't gotten a chance to do that yet. Yeah. But I got everything to do that. Um, the big thing for me, though, is I had said things needed to change for me work-wise. Um, I needed to really focus more on being able to have a life outside of work and to not focus and not tie my, my identity to my work as much as I had for so long. Yeah. And I said from the beginning, if things didn't change at work, I was going to have to change things. And I ended up taking a different position as a result of this. And it's not that I couldn't keep doing what I was doing. I was still doing my job. I was still performing at, uh, you know, a high level. I hadn't lost anything. I was very fortunate to like physically be able to keep up with the same hours and to be able to really kind of thrive. But things looked like they were going to go back to the way that they were. And I felt it was the one selfish thing I could do for myself was to say, I'm going to stick to my guns and I'm going to make a change. And I did. I ended up accepting a different position, uh, still doing something very similar, uh, but with not as many hours. Um, yeah. And that was my first step uh, to living that life that I wanted to live, was to make more time for myself so when the world does open back up, I can go and take flying lessons. I can go and take scuba lessons. I can learn how to play the guitar. Uh, and I can spend more time with friends and family. Uh, yeah. And that's, that's one of the important things that I want to do. Yeah. Beautiful answer again. Not going to matter. I try. <laughs> I try. And again, here's the thing with living through something like this. Like you can come out of it bitter. And I really could. Like how many people can say that they had as many bad things happen within such a short period of time as I did? You know, it doesn't happen. And I could come out of this bitter. And trust me, some days I am still very bitter over what happened. And sometimes they say, I really wish I had my stomach. And of course, I would rather still have my stomach. But I look on the bright side of things. I'm here. I'm doing better than most people who have gone through this. And I have lessons I can learn. And I feel like if you don't learn something from even the worst situation, it's a missed opportunity. So for me, it was you know, a reminder that we are all mortal. Uh, it's a reminder that there's so much more to life than work. And it's a reminder that we can do good things for the world because of our bad experiences. And we kind of temper that into a tool for good. And that's what I want to do. Yeah. You're reminding me, have you ever read a book? I think it was called On Death and Dying. Uh, it was a yeah. hosp hospice nurse that, that yes. wrote it. Yes. I read it, I think maybe a decade ago, but you're making me think of that book right now. It's coming back to me. Um, so I think it consisted of a bunch of interviews with a bunch of her patients at, at mm -hmm. hospice. And... 
I remember in conclusion, it was just like, nobody's on their deathbed thinking, I really wish I put a little more time at work. It always came down to, I wish I did the things that I loved mm-hmm. and I spent more time with the people that I loved. And it seems so obvious, but most of us don't really focus on that on the day-to-day basis. And I think facing what you have faced, it just made it a little more clear to you. Like, yeah, that, that is the stuff that I need to focus on a little more and focus on those things that just that matter. And to bring that back to that memento mori, you know, looking at that, that chart that was posted, I might have hit that 80th year and I might have looked back and said, I wasted my life if I hadn't had this experience that kind of opened my eyes and made me think about things differently. Right. So I might not get those full 80 years, but I hope the years that I have uh, maybe have more meaning than they could have. Sure. Um, just a couple more questions for you and speaking on uh death and dying. I'm wondering if you had any books or documentaries or any, any type of media like that, that impacted you that you would recommend to, to me and anyone that's listening. I wish I had a really good, like insightful answer, but I, I really don't. No worries. Um, yeah. You know, there were no real, uh, there were no real books that uh, books or videos or anything, but there was, uh, there was one thing, there were actually a, a few quotes. And if you give me a second, I'll pull them up. So yeah, I don't yeah. really butcher them. And the other thing, you know, that uh, it, to kind of tie it back into the, the maybe the athlete portion of it is, you know, I'm finally now in a position where I'm coming back from being skinny as hell, uh, the lightest I've literally been since elementary school, and I'm too stubborn, and I don't like being told I can't do something. So I was kind of told from the beginning that, uh, you know, your days of being a strong guy are probably over. Um, and as much as my body was the shape that it was because it, it had to be that way. If for me to be healthy, I was never going to be skinny. I was always going to be 230 pounds when I still had a stomach. Uh, so I figured I was going to be the, the healthiest 230 pounds I could be. Um, and I always had things that I was, you know, I was training for something all the time. Uh, you know, I was training for my career. I pursued some jobs and really my life goal was to work in a career that required me to be in very good shape. Uh, it unfortunately didn't work out, but after that didn't work out, I was still always training for something. You know, I was still trying to stay in really good shape and I could have said, you know, I'm getting towards middle age and you know, it's, it's time to just get fat and lazy. That's what happens. But I always felt like I was training for something and, uh, a coworker of mine uh, when I was kind of lamenting that I was losing all of this and that I had spent all of this time training and I didn't know what I was training for, uh, my coworker said, well, you were training though. You were training for something and it was to, to beat cancer. And I really tried to reframe things and think, well, yeah, you know, I was this big, strong guy. And the reason that I got through this maybe was because I was a big, strong guy and I was in good shape. And I had a lot of you know, it, it sucks to lose that much muscle, but I had a lot of extra weight that I could lose and still survive. If I would have been 150 pounds going through that last half of chemo, I could be dead. Uh, there's a good chance I would have been dead or I couldn't have finished chemo. So that's, again, one of those ways of trying to reframe things. Um, that being said, I'm stubborn. So I'm told that I can't be big and I can't be strong and I can't eat the type of calories that I'm supposed to. 
So even though I'm a guy without a stomach, I take in a minimum of 3,000 calories a day, sometimes as many as 5,000. And it was really kind of this spring all of a sudden. Um, I, my body went from, you know, it, it got kind of like saggy and flabby without a lot of muscle. And I looked sick and I, I was skinny fat. And it was, I, I did not like where things were going. But again, I was like, I'm alive and it's okay. Um, come this like last March, I started to get really stir crazy. And I said, you know, I'm going to start going to the gym again. I went to the gym the day that things closed down for COVID. Uh, and I went to reactivate my gym membership and they tell me, no, I'm sorry, like we're closing down. And that was that. So I, uh, I did the worst thing that I could have done. And that was, I decided I'm gonna start running because I'm going stir crazy. I need to do something physically. And my doctor had told me running and any aerobic or any type of weight loss associated exercise is a bad idea for somebody like you who is running out of weight to lose. And, but I was like, I got to get out. I got to do something. So I started running. And at first it was just like, I, I need to be able to run a mile. And uh, after all that chemo, after the surgery, you know, everything just doesn't quite work the same anymore. I bet. Yeah. So I struggled to run a mile. And then I was able to run a mile and I'm like, well, I'm going to try to run a mile in under 10 minutes. And that didn't, you know, that didn't take long before I got there again. And I kept kind of like pushing the goal further and further until I was able to get back to running a sub seven minute mile, which is definitely not great, but not bad for me. Um, but I looked in the mirror and I was like, I'm running out of weight to lose. And I started losing weight again. But the weird thing that happened about that time is my body started to build muscle again. Uh, so I hadn't been in the gym for a few months at that point, and my arms were still tiny, but I could see that they were getting a bit bigger. And I figured at that point, I really need to get my eating in order. I need to start eating the type of calories that I need to to counteract the weight loss. And I probably need to get back in the gym again. Are you working with any like nutritionist or any kind of professional with this or... So I, I went that route uh, and I've had a few consults with nutritionists. The unfortunate thing is it's just really tough to find somebody who, who works at that intersection of people who have had a similar surgery and who have gone through cancer. Because most yeah. of the people who have had a surgery to reduce the capacity of their digestive system did it because they wanted to lose weight in the first place. Got it. And yeah. so for me, it's the exact opposite. I lost a bunch of weight and I need to really work to make sure that I'm gaining weight again. Right. So I'm taking in up to 5,000 calories a day. I'm back in the gym um, and I'm making some serious progress. I'm already doing better than uh, really anybody expected that I would be. And I'm stubborn enough to where I didn't erase any of my old goals. So all of the goals that I was working towards when I was 230 pounds and built like a brick shithouse are the same ones I have now. Uh, and I've clawed my weight back up to about 170 pounds. I still have about another 15 to 20 pounds to go before I'm kind of satisfied with my weight because I'm never going to get back up to 230 pounds. And that's fine. I had some weight left to lose when I was that weight. I'm just going to make myself as strong and as healthy as I can at the weight that I can get to, which is again, in kind of the, the same mentality that I had to begin with. You know, you're kind of dealt what you're dealt with for a body with genetics and everything else. And you got to make yourself as healthy as you can be with what you're given. No. So that's what I'm working towards now. 
Uh, I may never be the world's strongest man. I was never going to be, but maybe I can be the world's strongest man without a stomach. <laughs> yeah that'll that'll be the goal for now yeah hell yeah <laughs> uh, so let me uh i i had uh one quote that i really really loved here yeah and, yeah and we could close with this all right and then if you have any closing thoughts afterwards we can yeah absolutely uh so this was uh it was a poem by tecumseh um and this was one that i shared with uh not only with everybody when i was first kind of announcing my diagnosis uh, so when I was first diagnosed, I told a very select few people. Uh, I ended up telling coworkers because people were going to notice that I was sick and losing weight and my hair was going to fall out. But I didn't tell a lot of my, my friends and family until I was a little bit further on because I wanted to know what the course of treatment was and how things were looking. No. So after that third round of chemo and after we knew that the scan was looking really good and we knew that we were still looking at curative intense surgery... I ended up uh, telling everybody via Facebook uh, and I shared part of a quote, but I can read the whole quote here. And it's just, it's one that I love. Um, I'll probably butcher it now that I've, I've talked so long. I'll stumble, stumble my words, but (laughs) I'll do my best. A little bit of scotch. No worries. (laughs) (laughs) Better have one more sip then. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) All right. So live your life that the fear of death can never enter your heart. Trouble no one about their religion, respect others in their view, and demand that they respect yours. Love your life, perfect your life, beautify all things in your life. Seek to make your life long and its purpose in the service of your people. Prepare a noble death song for the day when you go over the great divide. Always give a word or sign of salute when meeting or passing a friend even a stranger when in a lonely place. Show respect to all people and grovel to none. When you arise in the morning, give thanks for the food and for the joy of living. If you see no reason for giving thanks, the fault lies only in yourself. Abuse no one and no thing, for abuse turns the wise ones to fools and robs the spirit of its vision. When it comes to your time to die, be not like those whose hearts are filled with the fear of death, so that when their time comes, they weep and pray for a little more time to live their lives over again in a different way. Sing your death song and die like a hero going home. That quote always makes me emotional every time. And I'm, I'm a guy who doesn't cry easy, but that was one thing that that whole thing, that whole mentality has just been one that I've tried to hold to heart throughout this entire process. Yeah. Make your life meaningful. Don't regret anything. Live your life to the fullest. Help others. Like, I think there's so much good in that. That is amazing. That is a beautiful quote. Colt, I can't thank you enough for doing this. It helped me tremendously. I'm sure everyone that's listening right now, it's helped them. You seem to be doing so much good in the world now, and you found this purpose that maybe you didn't have a few years ago, but obviously it's really guiding you to this a beautiful life where you're really having a positive impact on the world. And again, thank you so much. Cheers to you. Thanks for having a, a glass of scotch with me and absolutely having this conversation with me. You want to add any closing thoughts or should we close strong with that quote? Cause that, <laughs> that was a, a strong, powerful moment there. I think that's a good quote. Uh, the one thing that I would add is, uh, you know, listen to your body. Um, really do. And statistically speaking, you know, you talk about your own struggles with that and, you know, being worried about things. Statistically speaking, you're probably fine. 
but listen to your body. If something feels off, tell your doctor. Um, and if you've got a doctor that you don't have faith in, if you've got a doctor that doesn't listen, you deserve a better doctor. Everybody does. Uh, so definitely listen to yourself. Awesome. Thank you so much, Colt. I really appreciate it. I hope to talk to you again at some point in the future. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Anytime. Yeah, we'll keep in touch. Thanks so much, buddy. Not a problem. Take care. Thank you so much. Cheers, man. Cheers.